Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. In just a moment, we're going to begin in verse 1. We'll work our way through the chapter. And uh, I hope that you have the Bible. And if you don't, you can watch on the screen. And I'm preaching today out of the New Living Translation. I wonder if you've ever met somebody that looked like they had it all, only to find out later that they were not happy and they were not content. I've met people who seemed to have it all, but they didn't feel like they were fulfilled. I've seen people who were married who were messed up. I've seen sorrowful singles too. Anxious atheists, purposeless PhDs, depressed doctors. I love to do alliteration. Lonely lawyers, sad singers. Now here's where I get off of it a little bit. Frustrated philosophers. It may not be the same letter, but it sounds right. Discouraged dignitaries, lonely leaders. I've met hardened husbands, weary wives, tuned out teenagers, perturbed parents, arrogant aristocrats, and I have met miserable millionaires. I've met people who seemed like they had it all, only to say, I'm not happy, I'm not content. By far the happiest people on earth are Holy Spirit-filled Christians. If you're not a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, Spirit-filled, church-going, soul-winning, disciple-making, rapture-ready Christian, you don't have any idea what joy is about. You don't understand why we get happy when we sing these songs. Thank you, Jesus. Not just for the blood, but the blood applied. I like that. Charity Gale wrote that. The blood is awesome, but when it's applied, that means salvation. That means grace. That means forgiveness. That means victory. Has the blood of Jesus been applied to you? Have you ever opened up your heart to Jesus Christ? The most happy, joyful, fulfilled people are Holy Spirit-filled Christians. And if that is not you, here's the title of the message. There's no peace for the ungodly. You will never have peace until you know the Lord. I'll give you three things today, and I have been warned that my outlines were getting a little bit long and hard to write down. <laughs> Bless your hearts. This hits me right there, I tell you. <laughs> Number one, godly people are rare. Few and far between. Look at verses 1 and 2 in Isaiah 57, New Living Translation. Good people pass away. The godly often die before their time. But no one seems to care or wonder why. No one seems to understand that God is protecting them from the evil to come. For those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die. 
Isaiah said, when godly people die, sometimes people wonder why they died in the prime of life, or we would say before their time. Few people recognize the significance of the death of godly people. I can remember Don and I had the privilege of going to the funeral of Billy Graham. And I couldn't help but think, this is a difficult day. One of the greatest prophets of all time is being buried today. We know he's in heaven, but in the words of George Jones, who's going to fill his shoes? Who's going to be the next Billy Graham? Will we have a prophet that everybody knows he's a prophet from the north to the south, from the east to the west? When godly people are removed from this world, society becomes rotten and dark because Christians are salt and light. Isaiah said, when godly people are removed, it's a warning from God to the wicked. I'm removing my godly people, and it could be he's doing it because he doesn't want them to suffer what everybody else is going to have to if we don't repent of our sins. You look at me. I'm an American, but God is not. Did you hear what I just said? God doesn't need America. He doesn't need Bellevue Baptist Church. He doesn't need Steve Gaines. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention. God is God. And when he starts removing godly people, sometimes it's a warning, like he was saying here. He says, no one seems to understand that. When the Lord allows the righteous to live, he's sparing sinful people as well. But when God allows them to die before their time, he's protecting those godly people whom he takes from the evil that is yet to come. That's straight out of the Bible. Verse 2, for those who follow godly paths will rest in peace when they die. Instead of suffering the wrath of God, they're going to rest in peace in the presence of God. Godly people are rare. I, I encourage you. Be rare. Be a godly person. Go after God. Forget your past. Ask God to forgive you. Move on and go for God. We read in Acts chapter 12 about a guy named King Herod. He was a wicked man. He arrested two of the first apostles, James and Peter. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, they were fishermen. They were the ones to whom Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. John went on to write five books of the New Testament. James was beheaded. He was arrested with Peter. James was beheaded and Peter was next, but the Sabbath came up and Herod decided to wait. And the Bible says, that the church, this is all in Acts chapter 12, the church was praying fervently. There's only twice in the New Testament that prayer was prayed fervently. One is when Jesus 
was in Gethsemane, and he prayed so fervently that his sweat was like great drops of blood. When's the last time you prayed and broke a sweat? That's fervent prayer. And then when they were praying for Peter to be released in Acts chapter 12, they were praying fervently all night, whatever it took. And God sent an angel, opened the door. Did you know that angels can open jail cells? Did you know that? And P- Peter walks right out. He thinks he's dreaming at first. He wakes up and he said, this is real. And he goes out, and I love the way the angel served the Lord. As soon as he got through, he just left. He didn't wait for anybody to thank him or anything. Boy, if we had Christians like that, we'd get more done. Amen? He got the apostle Peter out of jail, walked out, and then just left. Why? His job was to obey God. That's all the credit he wanted. The Bible says that Peter went and he went on and kept preaching, obviously, wrote two books of the New Testament. Whatever happened to old Herod? Herod got mad and killed the guards that supposedly let Peter go free. But Herod was making a speech one day to some people that owed him some money. And they acted like he was a great speaker. Why? Because he, they owed him some money. That's why. He wasn't a great speaker. And he got all proud of himself, and God gave him a disease that killed him. And do you know what the Bible says? Let me read it to you, Acts 12. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod because he did not give God the glory after that fancy speech, and he was eaten by worms and died. Don't make that backward. Don't say he was died eaten of worms. That happens to a lot of people. You say, Brother Steve, don't talk about that. Well, it's going to happen, so what? He didn't die and then was eaten by worms. He was eaten by worms and died. What a horrible way to live, to die. But the gospel kept right on going. I love that. Verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. The Herods of this world may try to stop the gospel, but you won't stop Jesus Christ. Godly people are rare. Jesus said so. In what I call the invitation of the great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter, Jesus said, by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, that leads to hell. And there are many who enter through that wide gate. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. If Jesus said anything there, what he said was, Most people don't go to heaven. Most people go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. Now, we've got thousands of people here on our campus today and other Sundays. And sometimes we can think, well, there's a lot of people going to heaven. Well, most people aren't. Most of the people in Memphis aren't going to heaven. Not because they're not Baptists or they don't belong to Bellevue. No, because they don't know Jesus. They may have a little religious ritual they do, but they don't know the Lord. They've never repented of their sins, like you said in the Baptist. They never believed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. They've never received Him as their Lord and Savior, and they don't live for Him in a Holy Spirit-filled way. 
Friend, I want to tell you something. True Christians are a minority. A minority. There are some of you here today, you go to church, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Standing in your garage doesn't make you a car, does it? No. Sitting in a Baptist pew doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus makes you a Christian. Do you know Jesus? Did you come in here with Jesus? If not, don't walk out of here without him. Godly people are rare. Be one of them. Be delightfully different. Secondly, ungodly people are rebels. No amens on that. Look at verse 3. Isaiah was addressing some wicked people. They claimed to follow Jehovah. But Isaiah denounced them for their rebellion. Look at verse 3. But you, come here, you witches' children. You offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. If a preacher preached like that today, he'd be fired, wouldn't he? Whom do you mock? Making faces and sticking out your tongues, you children of sinners and liars. He's talking about their parents. He's talking about them too, but he's talking about their parents. He was downplaying their mom and dad. And he said, you mock me when I preach. You ever had somebody mock you when you were talking? I remember a few years ago, right in here somewhere, wasn't one of y'all. I hope. There was some woman, I was preaching away, she stuck her tongue out maybe while I was, I was preaching. I thought, what's that all about? Never met her, didn't know who she was. I didn't feel persecuted. I figured they did it to Isaiah. They did, did it to me, you know. Whom do you mock? Making faces at sticking out your tongues, you children of sinners and liars. He condemned their parents. He said, your parents are witches. You're children of witches. You're offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Now watch that. There it is. There's the double threat right there. Idolatry and immorality. They go together hand in hand. When you cheat on God, you'll be unfaithful to your spouse. Happens all through the Bible. Idolatry and immorality. Always mentioned together almost. Witchcraft. Well, Brother Steve, we don't really believe in that. We, we believe in, you know, that's just kind of fairy tale, you know, Walt Disney stuff. It's not Walt Disney stuff. It is real. There are real witches in Memphis, Tennessee. There are real Satanists in Memphis, Tennessee. There are people involved in the occult in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm telling you, it is real. All witchcraft, all forms of occult are pagan idolatry, and you don't mess around with it. Wiccans, warlocks, 
And Isaiah also called their parents adulterers and prostitutes. Idolatry is being unfaithful or cheating on God. Adultery and fornication is cheating on your spouse. Prostitutes. And he said, you're also sinners and liars. Verse 5, you worship your idols with great passion beneath the oaks under every green tree. Now, brace yourself for what's about he's about to say. Jeremiah says it three times. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. He says it three times in his prophecy. But Isaiah says it here. You sacrifice your children down in the valleys among the jagged rocks in the cliffs. Your gods are the smooth stones in the valleys. You worship them with liquid offerings and grain offerings. They, not I, God says, are your inheritance. Do you think all this makes me happy? You've committed adultery on every high mountain. He's calling this pagan worship spiritual adultery, straight up with it. There you have worshiped idols and have been unfaithful to me. When you're unfaithful to God, he says you're committing adultery spiritually. Verse 8, you've put pagan symbols on your doorpost, behind your doors. You've left me, you've climbed into bed, look at that, with these detestable idols or gods. You've committed yourselves to them. You love to look at their naked bodies. They were engaging in unmentionable sexual sins while they were involved in their pagan idolatry. Verse 9, you've gone to Molech with olive oil and many perfumes, sending your agents far and wide, even to the world of the dead. That's necromancy. It's talking to the dead. That's what he's talking about there. People do that stuff nowadays, claim to be Christians. It is demonic. Don't you ever do that. Don't ever. If you've been done that, get out of that. If you've got a relative in that, with all due respect, stay away from your relative. Palm reading, all that stuff, talking to the dead, it is real, it is demonic. If they have any power at all, it comes from the devil. Witchcraft, soothsayers, necromancy, all of it. And Isaiah was talking, he said it was in his day too, see. Verse 10, you grew weary in your search, but you never gave up. Desire gave you renewed strength, and you did not grow weary. They were searching for sin. Are you afraid of these idols? Do they terrify you? Is that why you have lied to me and forgotten me and my words? Is it because of my long silence that you no longer fear me? God was saying, yeah, I've been silent, but it's not because I was pleased with you. I've been silent because I'm about to lower the boom. God was tired of them being idolatrous. He was tired of them being immoral. And through Isaiah, he was boldly confronting his people. We couldn't handle this kind of preaching nowadays. This is why Manasseh and others had him, Isaiah, sawed in two later on. Because he would not back down from preaching the word of God. God says your idols are nothing. 
They're not real. The Israelites to whom Isaiah spoke were ungodly rebels. It's very interesting. I've told you before, Satan hates babies. Remember how he killed the babies, the Hebrew babies in Moses' day? Pharaoh gave that horrible decree, all the Hebrew boys. He was also behind the people in Isaiah's day that burned their babies as human sacrifices to Baal and Moloch. Now, that is an exact picture of what it's like. You see the people around there worshiping, and that is an iron-cast idol of Baal. And they're about to lay that, and they've got a fire going under it. It is red hot, and they're about to lay that baby who will be burned to death. He said, how could anybody do that? Same way people can abort a baby today. If you've had an abortion, I'm not here to condemn you, but I'm telling you this, it's sin. It may not harm the mother, but it harms the baby. It may be painless for the mother, which most of the times it's not painless for the mother. But it is lethally painful for the baby. It kills the baby. We know that babies are alive in the womb. Ultrasound shows that. I don't know how many times, I guess 18, our kids have texted us their little babies in their mother's womb, our grandchildren. Jeremiah renounced this. You know, this has been going on a long time. We think it's just a modern thing. No, it's been going on a long time. The killing of babies, sacrificing of babies to the idols and to the pagan gods. It's been going on a long time. And at best, abortion is sacrificing at an idol of conveniency. But it is brutal to the baby. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 19.5, and he said it three times, this is just once on. You have built the high places of Baal to burn your sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded. Now watch this nor did it ever even enter my mind. Some people th say that everything that happens is the will of God. Those verses say that everything that happens is not the will of God. God did not predestine babies to be burned to Baal. And God did not predestine or decree that somebody would abort a baby. If you've had an abortion, if you'll repent and ask God to forgive you, I'm not here to beat you up. I am just telling you, America is just as wicked as Israel was. America, I don't understand how God has not already poured out his wrath upon our nation. When you think about the sexual sins, and when you think about the greed, and when you think about abortion, that's enough to wipe a country off of the map. They talk about choosing life. I believe in choosing life. 
If you want to be pro-choice, be pro-choice for life. Choose the baby. Give the baby for adoption. Take your pen out and write this down. I'm going to move on. If you are pregnant, we do not, and you're out of, it's out of wedlock and you say, I, I'm just not ready, whatever, to raise a child, I want you to call one of two places. Life Choices has a 24-hour hotline. 901-388-6262. Everybody in here ought to have those numbers on your phone so you could help somebody when you need to. So please write these numbers down. That's the hotline, 24-7. You can call them, 901-388-6262. Take a picture of that if you need it. That's fine. Then confidential care for women. This is not a 24-hour line, but it's normal business hours, 901-873-2273. And Bellevue supports both of those ministries. If you know of someone that needs to put a child up for an adoption, whatever, that's the way you need to go. But don't abort your baby. Don't do it. And if you have, ask God to forgive you and move on. Just like we sang Amazing Grace. Did we not start off with Amazing Grace? If you knew what John Newton had done, he, he killed he tortured slaves. He was a wicked man. But God saved a wretch like him, and he became a pastor and wrote amazing grace. So I believe not just in grace, I believe, and I want amazing grace. Amen? I don't want a little grace. I want amazing grace for myself. People in our nation are rebellious against the Lord in so many ways. Some hate it when a church proclaims and affirms the truth of God. You know what the Bible says about the church? 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. We need truth in a world of lies. Some hate the gospel saying it's too narrow-minded. Some people are so broad-minded their brains are falling out. Amen? 1 Timothy 2.5, there's only one God. And there's one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. The world hates marriage because it forces them to make a commitment. But the Bible says in Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Notice, he leaves a father and a mother, not a father and a father, not a mother and a mother. And he doesn't cleave to a man, he cleaves to a woman heterosexual monogamous marriage, the only kind the Bible approves of. And a lot of people hate Christians because we don't support ungodly agendas. 
Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, the same Peter that was taken out of jail by the angel. He said, for the time will already has passed is sufficient. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. You've already sown enough wild oats. It's time to start living for God. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries, in all of this, they're surprised now that you no longer run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. I can remember when I quit living for the world, my best friends in high school maligned me. They turned their back on me because I wouldn't drink with them anymore and party with them anymore. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The world hates the Bible because it doesn't affirm the LGBTQ lifestyle. Romans 1, 24 and following says, So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Why? That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. The more things change, the more things stay the same, do they not? Sacred and safe sex is only in heterosexual monogamous marriage. One man and one woman. That's it. That's it. Ungodly people, according to Scripture, are rebels. Godly people are rare. Ungodly people are rebels. Thirdly, forgiven people are restored. Now, he's going to come back now and say, now look, I've given a hard message, but every one of you can be forgiven if you'll repent. Look at verse 14. God says, rebuild the road. I like that. Clear away the rocks and the stones so my people can return from captivity. He sent them off to Babylon. Now he wants them to come back home. He punished them. Now he wants to bring them back in. He disciplined them, and now he wants to love on them again. He said, the high and the lofty one who lives in eternity. The Holy One says this, I live in the high. This is one of the greatest verses in Isaiah. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble. I revive the courage of those who have repentant hearts. I want to say this to you. God hates sin, but He loves it when sinners repent. He loves it. He runs to you when you even look toward Him. And Once they repented, God said, I won't always be angry with you. Look at verse 16, for I will not fight against you forever. I will not always be angry. If I were, all people would pass away, all the souls I've made. I was angry, 
So I punished these greedy people. I withdrew from them, but they kept going on their own stubborn ways. I have seen what they do, but I will heal them anyway. I will lead them. I will comfort those who mourn, bringing words of praise to their lips. May they have abundant peace, both near and far, says the Lord who heals them. Then the Lord ends this whole chapter with one more severe warning. Verses 20 and 21, but those who still reject me after I'm gracious, those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which never is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. We were on the beach a few weeks ago with the kiddos down there at Beach Week. Our students from Bellevue were down there. Don and I went down. And a lot of the beaches were almost closed because the, there was so much action going on under the water and people were drowning, have drowned there several in the last few months. And that beach was churning up, like it says here, the mud and the dirt. The, dark, the water was dark in some places because it was just churning and churning. And God says, that's what your life is like when you live in sin. You're constantly churning. You can never rest. And then he ends it with the title of our sermon. I softened the title up. Isaiah says, there's no peace for the wicked. I said for the ungodly. Repent and I'll forgive you. I'll restore you. But if you continue in your sin, you're going to continue to be a restless sea. If you're going to continually churn up, tossing dirt and filth, mud and dirt, then there will be no peace for you. No peace for the wicked. Jesus told about a young man who, I'm going to tell you something. My kids, I don't think, I think, well, I mean, I think they've got enough sense never to ask me this. This boy went to his daddy and said, Dad, I don't want to wait until you die. I want you to give my inheritance to me now. I can just imagine me saying that to my daddy. I'll give you an inheritance. But this son, who was rebellious against his father, his father gave it to him. He went out, wasted his father's wealth on loose and riotous living, the Bible says. He was immoral, he was ungodly, and he spent everything he had. And he, as a Jew, was forced to feed the hogs, which... Jews weren't supposed to be around, of some Gentile man. And he was so hungry, he was willingly ready to eat, and he was eating what the hogs were eating. Have you ever seen what hogs eat? We won't talk about it right now. Sometimes people have to go to the bottom before they repent. He hit rock bottom and look at what the Bible says. But when he came to his senses, ah, that's good. 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up. I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired men. So he got up. That's repentance. He got up out of his sin. He got up. He came to his father. That's faith. While he was still a long way off. I love this. How many of you have ever been a long way off from God? Anybody? I have. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw him before he saw his father. And I'm telling you, if you're far from God, God is looking for you whether you're looking for God or not. His father saw him. He felt compassion for him. Five verbs. He saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran to him. He didn't walk to him. He embraced him and he kissed him. Five things. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's as far as he got with his forgiveness speech. God said, his father said, hush. Father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, the sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and be merry, celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and was, has come back to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to party. They began to celebrate. There's no peace for the wicked. But praise God, there is forgiveness for people when you're restored to the Lord. Amen. When you get saved, God washes you. Read in Titus 3, He saved us not only on the basis of deeds which we've done, but according to His mercy, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. When you get saved, you become a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, new things have come. When you get saved, you're forgiven of your sins and they're wiped away and forgotten by God. Acts 3, 19 and 20, therefore repent and return that your sins may be washed away. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you. When you get saved, the Holy Ghost comes to live within you. Romans 8, 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I've heard people say, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not spiritual. i got news for you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're lost. When you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, he baptizes you into Christ, the Holy Spirit does. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. When you get saved, God writes your name down in the book of life. Jesus said in Luke 10, Behold, I give you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions on all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you, injure you. Nevertheless, don't you rejoice in this, that the spirits, the demons are subject to you in my name, but rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Hallelujah. Glory to God. There's no peace for the wicked, but I got news for you. There's joy and forgiveness for people who are restored.
I tell you what, Isaiah just lays it out. This is about the easiest sermon you could preach. It's amazing when you just walk through the Bible what comes out of it. Amen? You're either going to be rebellious toward God or you're going to be reconciled with God and there's no middle ground. And I'm asking you today to be reconciled to God.